John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hi, this is Steve. Those of you who've listened to the early episodes of The Cinephiles know that when John and I started the show, we tried to keep our recordings to under one hour. Then they expanded to an hour 10, hour 20. But when we actually started to go beat by beat through the whole film, our podcasts were suddenly as long or even longer than the movie itself. Our first two-part episode, of course, was Citizen Kane. And on Lawrence of Arabia, we actually had to split it into three. Now, I've always worried that we would eventually get to a point where the shows were just too darn long and our audience would lose patience with the cinephiles. After all, one of the basic rules of filmmaking is that shorter is almost always better. At least that's what I tell my students. Still, the fact is, of all the comments we get, not once has anybody ever said the show was too long. So when it came time to tackle the monolith that is Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather films, John and I decided to pull out all the stops and let our conversations go on as long as they needed to. And while I'm very proud of our third episode on Godfather Part 2, which is coming out this Friday, I have to warn you that we still haven't made it to the end. Now, I think we're going to finish it up next week, but since John and I haven't recorded it yet, I can't promise anything. So if you still haven't seen this incredible movie, all you need to do is visit cine-files.net. That's cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream The Godfather Part 2, along with every other film we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be listening to a cinephile short on movie sequels, including some of your comments from social media. So that's a discussion of movie sequels on Patreon and The Godfather Part 2. Act 3, this Friday, on The Cinephiles. Do you expect me to let you take my children from me? Don't you know me? Don't you know that that's an impossibility, that that could never happen? 
that I'd use all my power to keep something like that from happening. Don't you know that? Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on the Outlaw Nation and a voiceover guy. Uh, and excited to be back for another part uh, of uh, uh, talking about Godfather Part 2. So excited to be jumping into this. Uh, or what do you call them? Installments? What are you calling them, Steve? Uh, acts. Acts. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. glad to be back for another act of our discussion uh, of Godfather Part 2. Uh, and already people are responding to our uh, our first part, our first act so positively so yeah it's great it's so funny the act thing it's it's a, the stuff that i stress about <laughs> it's always weird because i was going like wait what because i've always called when we had things in two parts it was raiders of the lost ark part one raiders of the lost ark part two right but i couldn't say part two because if i said the godfather part two that sounds like the second movie and then it also sounded weird to say now we're on the godfather part two part two right. you know right. all, all this sounded weird in my head and i'm like literally spent a lot of time going what do i do it's the stupidest thing we all got our ocd things man exactly um i'll tell you it's been uh, one thing it's been so odd to have lived in this world now for so long you know like we we've never done this before and I, i i think it's been really great but it's also man we're still with the corleone family you know oh yeah oh yeah um, and where we left off, we just had the scene where Meyer Lan- <laughs> now I did it, where <laughs> Hyman Roth comes at Michael with the speech about Mo Green that's so amazing. And I just, before we move on, I want to I want to revisit that a tiny bit. Sure. So to be clear, did Hyman Roth just admit that he was behind the assassination attempt? To me, he has by saying who are, in essence, what I think he's saying in this exchange with Michael, um, if you read between the lines, as people say to do, is he's saying nobody, I didn't ask who gave the order about Mo Green, and I know it was you, and I understood it was business, so don't you come ask me about an order I gave because it's business. Give me the same respect I gave you, and I think that's what Myers, I'm sorry, God damn it, that's what Hyman is saying, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, um, in the on the wavelengths underneath you know because that's what's so great about these mafia people and these mob people steve when you even when you listen to the tapes when they're being recorded they're talking in code and so even here amongst themselves they're talking in code about uh, a certain situation uh, and about the honor of that code and not disrespecting it so it's so it's again it's, it goes to the ambiguity in this film because he could just be saying don't ask me about Frank Pantangeli, which is right. what Michael just did. He right. could be saying that, but he also could be saying this other thing. Yeah. And here's the other thing that is, I've been thinking about in this last week is why did Michael have Mo Green killed? Well, because of the disrespect. And it's the irony as you look at the second movie, the disrespect that Mo Green showed to his brother, plus the disrespect Mo Green showed to Michael Uh, When he said, you don't buy me out, I buy you out. The Corleone family is running and all this kind of stuff. And the thing is, uh, and then he tried to try to strong arm Michael and uh, Alex Roca, Rocco, Rocco is such a great actor because when Michael comes back at him, 
to say, no, 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 you protected Fredo because you were bankrolled by our people, blah, blah, blah. Alex does this thing of adjusting the tie and the adjusting of the tie shows a discomfort. And it shows that Michael has actually called his bluff and come back at him with information to knock him back on his heels. And so the, in that moment, Michael uh, Mo has shown that he'll never have respect for the Corleones. So the best thing to do is just to take him out because he's always going to be a, an impediment to what they want to do in Vegas. So this is what I've been thinking about. I think everything you said is exactly correct. And I'm going, we've always assumed that the murders at the end of Godfather yeah. are what he and Vito agreed to. Mm. Or I've always assumed that. And really? now I'm going, um, I don't think Vito would have killed Mo Green. Nope. And I, I, that's what I think. I think Michael waited to do what he wanted to do until after his father died. In no way was he ever, including killing uh, uh, Connie's husband. There's no way Vito would have approved that, no matter what was happening. Uh, and so th that's why the mom says, you know, don't get involved. Don't get involved. That's between them when she's yelling at Sonny. Don't get involved. That's a tradition. And there's no way Vito would have approved Michael doing what he did at the end there. Well, and, you know, because Vito says uh, that is not justice. Your daughter is still alive. Right. And he says, we're not murders, murderers, despite what this undertaker thinks. Mm -hmm. Is that I understand killing Barzini and Tatalia. Right. That I bet is is was Vito's intention because Barzini was about to kill Michael. Right. You know, we we know that. Why kill the heads of all five families? Vito yeah. would never have done that. Right. You know, because Vito actually is a guy who wants peace, not revenge. Yes. And he's a man of honor. And he said, nothing will happen to anybody in this room if you don't touch my son. And they respected that. Yeah. And for Michael to go behind their backs and essentially kill all of them, you know. Um, and I think part of what it's that those murders are so satisfying in a weird way yes, when yes, you are because that you feel like, wow, this is even though it's horrible, it's also cool on yes. some level. And now I'm going, oh, Michael shouldn't have killed Mo Green. Yeah, Mo Green slapped his brother around, but he shouldn't have killed him. That was too much. This is why Coppola wanted to turn him in more evil in the second film, because of what you just said. Let's go to a show. So Coppola loves musical numbers. It's one of the things he talks about. And there's musical numbers in here, and there's musical numbers in Apocalypse Now, and they're all weird. And he put a lot of effort into getting the fountains right and the band right. And, you know, this is supposed to be, I guess, the, you know, the big show in Cuba. Yeah. And Fredo's there and the senator's there. And then Johnny Ola comes up. You don't know my brother Fredo, do you, Johnny? Johnny Ola, Fredo. And, and, and first, just watch Casale, who does like the perfect blend of, I don't know, sheepish awkwardness. And then watch Al Pacino watching Casale. And you gotta see. Mm -hmm. He's starting to suspect. Yes. We never met. Johnny Ola. Pleasure. And then we go from there to a very different kind of club mm -hmm. to go see Superman. <laughs> yeah. Someone someone asked in one of our social medias or something, how many times has Fredo seen Superman? Uh, yeah, quite a few times, I would imagine. I think so, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And, and if you watch, one of the thoughts that I had watching the scene is, you know, we have everyone's ooing and eyeing, and because Superman is a person that is probably has, you know, Santino levels of endowment, we assume. Um, yeah. And everyone's drinking and having fun and being men. And Michael's sitting in the background. Does, 
and this is what occurred to me before we get to where we're going to go. Yeah. Does Michael Corleone ever have fun? That's a great question. Um, I mean, he looks like he's having fun when he's having the drink with Fredo before all of this goes down in Cuba, when he's having the back and forth with Fredo, he's smiling, he's relaxing, but I don't think we've ever seen him. I mean, there's a deleted scene in the Godfather where him and Kay are in the, their hotel room and they're having breakfast and there's a little playful banter between them, but, uh, and that's a little cute and maybe Coppola cut it because he thought it kind of undercut Michael's um, overall character of being this very serious, occasionally funny guy. And no, I don't imagine this is a guy that necessarily like, you know, becomes the the part, talk of the town or becomes the party animal. Um, and it's also why I think he doesn't drink. He only has like maybe one drink or a sip or two. He's not a teetotaler. And I think there's a reason he wants to always be in control. Well, teetotaler is someone who doesn't drink. Oh, I'm sorry. He, he, he's an anti-teetotaler, I guess. I think he never has fun. Mm. I mean, I just think he's just so damn serious. And I think he goes to, he's at, he's at both clubs. He's just enduring it because that's what he has to do. And now, now we're at this moment. Yeah. Someone asked Fredo how he found this place. And he says, Johnny Ola told me about this place. He brought me here. I didn't believe it, but seeing is believing. Huh? I see it and I still don't believe it. The reaction from Al Pacino is just stunning. Yeah. Good acting. He, I think he suspected it. He didn't want to let himself think about it, but I think he suspected it. I think so too. And uh, Fredo goes on because he said he doesn't know either Johnny Ola or Hyman Roth. Yeah. He, then he says, Old man Roth had never come here, but old Johnny knows these places like the back of his hand. It's just, it's a brutal, brutal moment. Yeah. But how stupid of Fredo, you know, because like, why let yourself, you, you've been so good at uh, lying about the situation. And the thing is, he could have said, oh, sure, I've met Johnny, Johnny Ola in yeah. one of my Vegas trips. He came to him and Hyman, blah, blah, blah. But for him to be so blatantly lying, it's just such a dumb moment. Uh, and especially on the heels of when he was just about to tell Michael what he was going to do. So it's just the tragedy of it all is it could have been avoided. And the person who asks Fredo, who showed him this place, is the senator. It's yeah. Leahy. So if he if if Leahy isn't a dick to Michael, then maybe they don't set him up in this way. Maybe he's not even down there to ask that question. Mm. This whole thing up. So it's just crazy how the pieces move in the way that they move. When they never, I never thought about that. And you know, advice to all you liars out there: <laughs> A, keep your lies simple. Yes. B, include as much truth as you possibly can. It's <laughs> yes. way easier to say like, oh yeah, I run into Johnny Ola a few times. Than it is to say, no, I never met him. Also, don't get drunk. <laughs> and, and, yeah, don't drink too much. Um, it's nighttime. We're on a balcony. Johnny Ola is out there. And then this is the weirdest murder in all of the Godfather movies. Yeah. Kills him with a coat hanger, our scary guy. <laughs> and they one up it in Godfather 3 when he kills him with glasses. But yes. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot about the killing yeah. with glasses. Yeah. Yeah, that one's this one's just sort of weird. But I love the camera work because as he gets out, because Roth has had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, and doctors are coming there, and that, and I love how the killer sort of fades in and out throughout mm -hmm. the room, and then goes out th through the door, and then how he just kind of disappears. It's very cool. And I love the music here, Steve. The the, the um, down beats, you know, just the tension that it's building, you know. Totally, totally. 
And now, so we have the the big show club. We had the dingy dark club with Superman. And now we have the palace and the huge New Year's Eve celebration. Um, and the senator is there. Is the, is the redhead that he's with the yes. woman from the club? Okay. He said, I'll take one of those. Yeah. And so, and Fredo said that you can have, and clearly he could. And, and, and then, uh, Fredo gets up and Michael asks where he's going. And he said, I love, it's just the little details. He's got his little champagne glass or whatever. It's yeah. like, I, I, I need a real drink. Fredo's a serious alcoholic. Yes. And it doesn't even occur to him that he's given himself away. That's also tragic in this moment, too. Oh, terrible. And now we're at the hospital. And what I find so interesting about this sequence is it's like the reverse of the hospital sequence in the first movie. Mm, yeah. Because our killer is dressed all in black and has flowers. And in the first movie, Enzo, the baker, is dressed all in black and has flowers. Yeah. And in the first movie, we're there to protect the guy who's sick. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, we're there to kill the guy that's sick. Yeah. You know, so it's the exact opposite. And then we're back at the party. And the senator has said that he doesn't think Eisenhower will ever pull out of Cuba. we got billions invested here. <laughs> the senator is in, doesn't know what's about to happen. And then the camera moves off our people to a bunch of soldiers. And then we see Batista go through this glass and Michael is picking up that something's going on and no one else is. In the hospital, the nurses get called away for a toast. Our killer smoothly moves into frame. And I think from what we've seen of him, we're like, Hyman Roth's dead. Yeah. Like, he's gonna kill him right now. And then some soldiers show up and they open the door, see him smothering Hyman with a pillow and kill him. Totally shocking. And you know, it's because of what the soldiers marching in, Batista is, so he's sent all the soldiers to go take care of the people who are rich, who've been supporting Batista to make sure they get out of the country safe mm. out. It is, he doesn't care about anybody else, but the people who've been supporting him all these years. Well, and again, I go like it's sort of the reversal because in The Godfather, the, the police, the authorities are mm. aligned with Salazzo right. and they are the ones that are helping to get Vito killed. Yeah. And in this movie, it's the authorities that come in and kill the killer, you know. They're protecting him. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's New Year's and Al goes and finds Fredo. There's a plane waiting for us to take us to Miami in an hour, all right? Don't make a big thing about it. And then he, I mean, this is the moment of the movie. Yeah. Grabs him, kisses him. I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart. And he's broke, like he's legitimately broken. And he shakes him with such a passion. And, you know, that was actually Pacino grabbing Gazelle that hard. And shaking, and we find out uh, later. We'll talk about it when he slaps Diane Keaton. That was him literally slapping Diane Keaton, and so it's like he's in that method place, and he does it so hard. And you see, I love the way Fredo yanks his fingers yeah. off his neck. Now, probably completely sober, Fredo out of fear, uh, and and runs off. You know, we've said it over and over again. Al Pacino's performance is yeah unbelievable. The intensity of this moment is incredible, and the the pain that he's feeling is so real, but it's also, this is a scary, scary guy. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
this isn't just a moment of Fredo feeling bad yeah. or being upset. This is a, a really scary moment, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't, you know, and, and of course, it's one of the most famous moments in the film. Yeah. And then at the moment of New Year's and fireworks and celebration is intercut with the revolution. Yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful juxtaposition. And then Batista gets up and makes a speech. He says, due to serious setbacks, my position in Cuba is untenable. I'm resigning immediately. And and I love that Michael's already out. Yeah. Um, and the senator's heading out. Everyone's heading out. By the way, this really happened. Mm -hmm. This is, he really was at a New Year's Eve party and said, I'm out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But that's that's but Michael, that's why Michael is the smartest person in both of these movies. Michael knew this was going to happen. Yeah. The second he brings up to Hyman is Michael saying, in essence, this is going to happen. So he had already had contingency plans. He had a, he had a plane ready to go in an hour. He knew Batista was eventually going to lose control of the country. Everything was set up and he was going to take care of Fredo. I think Michael's mistake was betraying to Fredo that he knew. If Michael had waited till Fredo was on the plane, there was nowhere Fredo could have gone. But the fact that in that moment, his passion for his brother overtook him, it's a mistake. It's a rare mistake from Michael. But you just answered a question that I had forgotten oh. to ask. Because my question, the question I forgot to ask was, did Michael plan on doing the kiss or was it an no. impulse? I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think he went up and said, hey, this is the plan. We're going to get out. And then it just took over. Yep. Um. So for thank you. Thank you for reading my mind. <laughs> Um, and then we see drunk Michael's in the car. We see drunk Fredo in the crowd and Michael calls him over. He says, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Fredo. Fredo, come with me. You're still my brother. Fredo. And Fredo runs away into the crowd. Do you believe him when he says that? I've gone back and forth in this moment many times. Do you believe that Michael cares for him in that moment and say, please, you're my brother. Is he afraid that his brother will get killed and get lost in Cuba? Or does he really want his revenge on his brother? I, my gut is that he means it. That's my gut at this moment. I think there's an evolution. Yeah. You know, to where he ends up. And I also, th I think he's, you know, he's, conf there, there is some conflict. I think right. the, I think he, the resolve builds over time. That's, but I don't know. Right. Um, and he makes it to the plane and we head out. Yeah. Um, by the way, uh, Meyer Lansky was in Cuba at the time of the revolution. He fled when Castro came in in Havana. It took him six days to get out and he finally got out safely. And here, here's the thing, just a piece of history, this moment of Meyer Lansky in Cuba and the fall of the Cuban government has ripples throughout so much of our history mm -hmm. because the people aligned with the American interests and the anti-Castro people, well, those are the Cubans that invaded in the Bay of Pigs. Right. When you hear about Cubans being involved in the Kennedy assassination, they, that's, the, that's these Cubans. You know, there were Cubans who worked as part of the CIA and were involved and later on involved in Watergate. Yeah. You know, like all like there's these ripples that go through history that and a lot of them come from this moment. Yeah. And all sorts of ties between the mob and Q and Cubans. Yeah. Nothing against Cubans in America. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> to be clear. Right. Uh, we're back at a, you know, at the Desert Inn, back in the States, and in comes Michael. I think he just got off the plane, mm -hmm. by the way. 
And I love that he asked for a wet towel. That's like the only sign of weakness I think we ever see from him, you know, of just, I'm tired. I need, you know, I just got to wipe my face. Um, one of the things that Coppola talked about that he learned from doing the conversation was not putting the camera traditionally on people and letting them move out of frame, letting them be cut off. So you're only seeing their legs. It's literally everything I teach my students not to do. <laughs> and it totally works. It gives you this sort of odd, very uh, real feeling. Like we're just kind of in the space with these people. Well, it's like anything, right? You want to teach them the basic techniques to start off. Then they can see what techniques work for them as they become filmmakers. Yeah. Well, and you got to be, uh, you got to be a real master to pull, pull to yeah. pull this off. You know. Yeah. What about my boy? Did you get him something for Christmas? I took care of it. What was it? So I know. And again, we go to a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Right. Where's my brother? Uh, Roth got out on a private boat. He's in the hospital in Miami. Uh, stroke, but we're coming okay. Your bodyguard's dead. I asked about Fredo. Not answering Michael's direct question. <laughs> I don't know how Tom thinks he would get away with that. Uh, I think he got out. He must be somewhere in New York. And this goes to your question again. I want you to get in touch with him. I know he's scared. Tell him everything's all right. Tell him. I know Roth must let him. Like he didn't know that we're going to try to kill me. See, and I think, like you said, this is a transitioning thing. This is a uh, fluid thing that is happening, discovering the betrayal of Fredo. So I agree with you that, uh, that when he's yelling for him in Cuba by the car, he means it. When he tells Tom that's him manipulating Fredo to come back. I don't think he comes from a place of care. He's had time to think about it on the plane, and now he understands how to go get Fredo. You know what else it is? What's that? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. True, very true. Well, and this is the thing about, because, you know, he does that with Hyman Roth, but he mm -hmm. also does it with Frank Pantangeli. Yeah. Is I think what the way Michael interprets it is sort of keep everyone close. Mm-hmm. Because you you keep your friends close to you too, yeah. But but in Michael's mind, all of his friends could be his enemy. Yeah, he never trusts anybody. Never trusts anybody. So yeah. of course he wants Fredo nearby, <laughs> whether he's a friend or an enemy. Yeah. And then Michael senses there's something else, and Tom says that Kay had a miscarriage and she lost the baby. Mm. And Michael, the first question is, was it a boy? And Tom tries to kind of, you know, look, enough bad news. Try to kind of, Michael, it was still good. Now, can't you give me a straight answer anymore? And it's just finally, Michael has hit his wall of yeah. personal losses. The loss of his brother, in essence, with the betrayal. And then uh, the situation here with the K losing the baby. Uh, and him losing the big deal that he was going to, you know, take over my uh, uh, Hyman's uh, empire down in Cuba with the bodyguard dying that he wasn't able to get control of the situation. So it's loss upon loss upon loss that causes this explosion from Michael in this moment. Well, and, and I think add to that, I, I don't think he slept and he literally yeah. escaped the revolution with the, by the skin of his teeth. I mean, it was a real stressful situation. Yeah. Um, and I love, again, you know, we have great actors here and Robert Duvall's- I really don't know. Is just perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and now we go back to Vito. Hmm. One of the things that was interesting that happened in post, by the way, is that they went back and forth in the first cuts. They went back and forth way more often. 
Oh, okay. So there was like 20 something, you know, passages through time. Right. And the biggest change in like the week before releasing the film was to reduce it down to, I think it's 12. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you're really with, particularly with Michael for these huge, long stretches. Yeah. Um, And obviously it works. Um, And now we're watching a little kid um, and it's Fredo and he has pneumonia and they're doing this really strange thing of kind of cupping with glass and fires. Apparently this is something that Coppola got from his relatives that they did. Mm. And here was my question. Is this why Fredo, is this why Fredo's stupid? Oh, I don't know. Uh, if the illness affected his brain, I don't know, to be honest with you. That's a fair point. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, and then Vito's driving in this truck with some <laughs> some dresses, and up, go, up comes Fanucci. Yeah, Fanucci. And he's basically there to shake him down. Yeah. Because he knows that he's been pulling these jobs with Tessio and Clemenza. He knows how much money they've made. And he says, well, you just give me 200 each. Yeah. You know, you got to treat a man like me with respect. And if you don't, the cops are going to come to your house, and your life's going to be ruined. Mm-hmm. And I love, too, that the, the sort of – it's just what you said about Fanucci in the theater thing, which is he doesn't take all the money because he wants to prove on some level he's a good guy. So he's like, yeah. and if it's less and it's just a hundred bucks, that's fine. Yeah, right. Just give me a taste. And then he takes a dress. The, but the thing that's great is that um, how De Niro plays Vito in this moment. And whenever mm-hmm. he deals with Fanucci, he's not intimidated. He doesn't radiate fear. He's very calm. And even at one point, kind of to fuck with him a little bit, in my opinion, he leans in and asks and makes him repeat something as if he's not even listening to him. And I think that's a, it's a ballsy move in that moment, you know, but that's Vito. He's not going to be intimidated by anybody. And he's very, very polite. Yes. Very, you know, because Vito is a soft spoken, polite person. Yes. And now I love this scene. This is this, we're at the dinner scene. And by the way, this is, I think De Niro's first scene on the movie Mm. is this one. And there's so much that he does. That's like Brando. And, Clemenza is like, okay, we got to pay him $600. And Vito says, suppose we don't pay. We have to pay. You know, he he runs the town. And what's interesting about the scene is at the beginning of the scene, it's Clemenza educating the young guy yeah. who doesn't really know the ropes. That's how that's how Clemenza is treating it. And he says, well, you know. I see my angel is super. Now would you send a tree? There's one of him. There's three of us. He's got guns. We got guns. And then Vito says, now what I say stays in this room. Give me $50 each to pay him. I guarantee he'll accept it. Right. Watch Bruno Kirby throughout this scene. <laughs> Because it's it's almost what's happening as Vito talks. It's almost like he's meeting this guy for the first time. Yeah, uh, he goes for and and Steve. This is the and all of us I think have experienced this in our life where we meet someone and we think we're the dominant person in the relationship. And as the relationship evolves, you start to understand that this person now takes a little bit more of the lead in the relationship. And I think this is what's happening here is, and you're so right to point out at Bruno because Bruno's like, he's doing this thing with Tessio. He's like, you believe this? You know, he's trying to indent and trying to essentially bring Tessio onto his side to go against Vito to be, no, you pay him what you're supposed to pay him. But as Vito says this, you see his mouth is almost agape 
yeah. in the reaction to Vito because he's seeing that, you know, this is a man that you don't mess with now as well, that Vito has a certain level of self-composure that neither Tessio and Goals that neither Tessio nor Clemenza have. So just by his natural essence in that moment and energy, he engenders their loyalty and respect. Well, it's what's so interesting is that he has such a soft kind of power. Yep. Is he he never feels the need to, he's never like alpha male, he's never dominant. Mm -hmm. He's always just he 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 earns his place through his intelligence and his actions and yeah. his demeanor um and he says all the things that we know about Vito Corleone he says I'll reason with him mm -hmm. now we know from <laughs> from the first movie that reasoning with someone means threatening them right but they don't know that yet I take everything I never lie to my friends yeah which I think is true and he says and he's got the whole plan Tomorrow, you both talk to Fanucci. He'll ask you for the money. Tell him you'll play whatever. Don't argue with him. And again, Bruno's going, what's happening here? <laughs> and they ask, how are you going to get him to take less? And he says, that's my business. Right. That's my business. And then finally, just remember that I did you a favor. Ma solo ricordatevi che mi fici un piacere. And, and even at the end, like he, like we have a salute and we toast. Yeah. And Clemenza very slowly <laughs> and cagily goes and gives the toast. Yeah. And, and the thing I think about is Im you imagine the last scene we see with Clemenza, Tessio, and Vito and the mm -hmm. deference. You have faith in my judgment? Yes. Do I have a loyalty? Yes, always, Godfather. To go from here to there yeah. is pretty amazing. Well, this is the foundation of w from which it's built from, yeah. We're at a big festa. Apparently Coppola loved these in New York whenever they had these big Italian, they were called festas, and this is probably the festa of San Gennaro. And we see Vito watching, and he gets his money from, from Tessio and from, from Clemenza, mm -hmm. and and then we have the, the line. Are you sure he's going to go for it? I'm making all free, don't refuse. Which isn't exactly the, the, the line. And it's cool, too, that we're seeing him slowly learn English as we go yeah. along. Yeah. We end up in a cafe. Fanucci's there. Vito comes in, puts the money on the table. <laughs> Fanucci puts his hat on the money. And then he, you know, he sees it's only $100. He pushes it away. But he's kind of respects Vito yeah. for this. Um, he says, you got balls. How come I've never heard of you before? He, you know, he drinks his little espresso or whatever it is with his pinky hanging out. This is what Coppola says about working with it, because this is an Italian actor. He says that Italian actors come, come with their entire performance worked out. Mm -hmm. This is, and they just present, this is exactly what I'm going to do. And then if you don't like it, well, then they'll go away and they'll come back with an entirely new performance. Yeah. Whereas the American actors, they want to evolve into it and discover it as they're going. And so figuring out how to work with the Italian actors with the American actors is a little complicated. And, and one of the things, one of the odd things you have to do as a director is go, in what order am I going to shoot this and how much rehearsal am I going to have? Yeah. Because some actors, particularly film actors that come in with it locked up, well, they might get worse and worse and worse as you go. Hmm. And other actors need that time to kind of discover it and they get better and better and better. And so you go, well, I want to shoot this guy's close up first. You know, like um, 
when I worked with Stacy Keach, he got better and better and better. Um, Joe Montaigne and Jane Seymour, Jane Seymour came in. That was the performance. Yeah. You know, yeah. she just, this is what I do. <laughs> this is what you're going to get. <laughs> yeah. By the way, she was the best. We had to do ADR with her and ADR yeah. is where you have to go in and re-record some dialogue because you had bad sound on the set. We also call it looping. She was, I, I mean, not that I have that much experience. She, it was amazing watching her do it. Well, she's done all those commercial campaigns through the years. So it makes sense. Well, and she did Dr. Quinn and, you know, yeah. like, she's just like, boom, 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 boom. All right. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> um, pros, man. Yeah. Uh, Fanucci gives Vito a little respect, takes the money, pinches him on the cheek, says, enjoys the festa. And Vito watches him go. And he touches his cheek where he pinched him. Yeah. Oh, see, Vito knows he's taken the measure of Fanucci in his experiences. So in this moment, he knew that Fanucci is a man who will, who is not to be respected necessarily and can be beaten. And so him coming light was his, in my opinion, was his test of Fanucci. And the fact that Fanucci took it uh, mm. showed Vito that he's not a man to be respected overall. And I think, I don't think Vito's going to kill him until he takes the money. And it, when he takes the money and takes the light money, that's when Vito goes, this guy shouldn't be running things. I should be running things. I'm going to kill him. And I think that's the moment when it happens. Again, you have read my mind and answered the question I was going to ask, which is <laughs> which is uh, whether or not Vito knew he was going to kill him from the beginning or if he's deciding it in this moment. Yeah, I think he was preparing for both possibilities. So he shows up with a gun because he knows. And it's not until Fanucci takes the money. He's a clown. Yeah. My, my gut is that he pr knew he probably was going to kill him. But he was That's curious. Fair. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And then the way Coppola shoots this sequence is so amazing with De Niro on the rooftops, tracking Fanucci as he makes it through this huge festa. By the way, it's so interesting when you see things in a culture that I, you never, I never saw before. And the Jesus with all the money hanging from him, that's, again, it's why you have an, an Italian make this movie, right, you know? Right. Also, the way he shoots, man, the rooftops, it makes it feel like you're back during that time. The almost kind of, not sepia tone, but certainly brownish hue. He shoots all the flashbacks in. It's just brilliant. It puts you immediately mentally into that frame of mind because those are the pictures you've seen your whole life growing up. So you think that that's how it actually looked, you know? Well, and this is, by the way, you know, we talked about uh, some episode a while ago <laughs> that um, that the studio wanted him to shoot on a back lot and he refused. Yeah. One of the big reasons is the back lot rooftops, where they even have them, are only four stories at most. Mm. And these are all six story rooftops. Right. And what that means is that changes the angle that you're shooting at. Right. Much more of a top down because De Niro is much, much farther up. And I just love the way he moves along those rooftops mm -hmm. tracking him. It's just so cool. Let me ask you a technical question. Is that a dolly track or how is he tracking De Niro as he's going through the rooftops? Is that a, a, is yeah, that a, a crane? It's a dolly? Okay. I I, I, I hadn't thought about it, but no. I, and now I kind of want to look at it again, but I'm almost positive it's a dolly. Yeah. Because um, if you did a crane, then which you could do, but yeah. then you lose that angle because you're higher up. Gotcha. You know? Right. And so if he fought to have the six story thing, he must've used a dolly. 
Yeah. But it is super, super smooth. I love to the moment that there's some kind of punch and Judy puppet show going on. Yeah. And Fanucci watches it for a second. Is it too violent for me? <laughs> and makes a show of it. That's why he's a clown. He's a clown. He makes a show of it that it's too violent for him. He wants to be in the spotlight. Uh, and ah, man, he's just such a clown. Well, that's why he wears a white suit. Yeah. I mean, he he wants he he this is actually I'm really glad you said that because he cares much more about his image than yes. he does about his success. Yes. Vito couldn't give two shits about his image. Right. Like right. he he wants to succeed. Yeah. That's what's important. Um, and I, yeah, you know, I've said it three times now, but but I love the way Coppola shoots this. I think the sequence is so exciting and dramatic and powerful. And Vito pulls out a cloth bundle out of the wall. He goes into this building. Fanucci goes inside the same building. Vito hears him coming. He unscrews the bulb. Yeah, you know we said it in Godfather is that. Mm-hmm. Coppola wanted every killing to be memorable. Yeah. How connected is Vito now at this point that he would know where Fanucci lives? Or is Fanucci the kind of person who talks about it so because he thinks he's so protected that he doesn't care if people know where he lives? I wonder, or if it's common knowledge because people come to ask him favors all the time. I don't know, but we don't know how we found out it, but he's there. And I think it's such a, as we're talking about it, Steve, it's coming to me in my head. Like, it's so funny that he unscrews a light bulb. A guy who needs the spotlight all the time is so Mm. vain that he'll even stop in a moment when there's no light and try to get the light turned on so it's it's, uh, illuminated for him. You know, that's an interesting point. I I may be way off, but I was just considering me in the moment. um, Here's what what I think about Vito is I go to the line, I spent my whole life trying to be, not to be careless. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think Vito, let me ask you this. Has Vito ever killed anybody? I don't think so. I think this is his first killing. I think so too. And I think he went through every single detail Mm -hmm. of how he was going to do this. Yeah. And so I think that he found out, not only did he find out where Fanucci lives, but he went through the building. Like he knew all the ins and outs. Yeah. And Vito, uh, has his gun and he wraps it in a towel, which was Coppola's idea for sort of a primitive uh, silencer, mm-hmm. essentially. And he fades back into the shadows. And then there is Fanucci coming up the stairs, stops at his door, turns, sees the light bulb and taps it. And the light comes back flickering yeah. And it illuminates Vito out of the shadows just a little bit as it flickers on. It's so beautifully shot. We hear the fireworks and he turns and sees Vito and says, what have you got there? And Vito shoots. Him. Vito steps into frame and shoots him, which I think is a great decision by Coppola. It is a active decision. Vito is determined to do this. It will happen. So having De Niro like step a little bit, step forward and shoot him is great. And Fanucci's reaction is fucking fantastic. Well, well, and I think I, he doesn't shoot him in the back. Nope. And I think he wants Fanucci to see who oh, did yeah. it. Yep. And you're right. His reaction. It's just sh- amazing. Like what? What? How has this happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and you hear, you read in the Bible about, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, how when there was true, uh, uh, pain or anger how people would tear their robes in in just 
utter uh, frustration and mm. sadness. In a way, him ripping the um, the vest to see where he's been shot is in a way reminiscent of that, especially because we're also getting that religious stuff going on in the streets. So there's kind of allusions to that in the moment. It's such an unusual reaction to want to rip a shirt open to see where you've been shot because you're so surprised that it's happened. And then Vito shoots him again in the in the face. Oh, in the cheek. It's, which is nasty. And we're hearing the fireworks go off. Yeah. Which is why he planned to do the murder during the festa. He knew that he planned that out too. And that towel catches on fire. That is just such a cool little detail. Mm -hmm. And then he kneels down, puts the gun in his mouth and shoots again. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if you caught this, but it's the same sound that is in the restaurant when Michael kills Salazzo. Oh, no. It's so similar. It's that. It's very similar. And he takes the wallet. Um, he's back on the rooftop. And again, you see the, how he's planned out everything. He disassembles the gun. He drops all the pieces down different little pipe smokestack stuff. He, he tosses the wallet and he walks back through the crowds. The shot, by the way, of him walking as the dolly's tracking with him with the fireworks in the background is an incredible shot. And I just go, how did they get the exposure for this? Because you have these super, super bright things going on in the background. They must have had so much light on Vito. And it's unpredictable. I mean, exactly how much light is that firework going to give? That's just something that seems technically really difficult to me. And then he gets to his family and he sits down on the stoop. He takes the baby, kisses the baby. Santino is there with an American flag, which I think is super important because these movies are about America. Yeah. I believe in America. And then Vito says, Michael, your father loves you very much. Robert Town, when he saw the movie, said that that's the best line in both Godfather movies. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Which is something to think about. Certainly, Steve, because if you imagine Robert Town as a screenwriter, read so many levels to that one line and the timing of that line's appearance in the movie, right? Just as Michael's been betrayed by his brother, uh, missed out on the deal, here is Vito having this really genuine moment with Michael. It adds to the tragedy of Michael as we go into the last parts of the film. His father loved him so much, yet Michael still ended up as this ruthless killer with no one around him who could trust. Yeah, I think, and it's it's interesting because when you think of a great line, you think, oh, it's got to be poetic. Oh, it's mm. got a beautiful language and mm. stuff like that. That none of that's true. This line is a very simple, straightforward line. Yeah. But yeah, it, it this is the because this movie is all about the connection between these two people who we never see together, yeah. you know. And him, everything he that Vito is doing is for his family. And Michael thinks that everything he is doing is for his family, right? But it isn't. Yeah. One other thing is again we've been talking about parallels. We have this murder that is happening in the middle of this religious ceremony that's intercut. It's the parallel to the christening. 
Yeah, and and I wonder also, uh, Steve, this is Vito's first murder. Like Salazzo was Michael's first murder, right? If, if maybe he killed in war, but it's not really the same thing for a lot of people. And so, this as Sonny points out, right? What are you going to do? You just got to get up closer. You got to get all of a nice Ivy League suit. So you see this here, and that there's parallels between. And I wonder if the restaurant that in first Godfather is in the same area as this uh, place where he kills Benucci. Mm. I wonder. Um, my guess is no, okay. because because we know that the Italian restaurants in the Bronx, ah, and I think this is I think this is a little 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 Italy. Okay. So I think this is on Manhattan, but I don't know. But that would be my gut. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the one other thing too is that it is the murder of Salazzo that makes Michael transition to become the Godfather, right. and it is the murder of Fenucci that makes Vito become the Godfather. Yep. yep. You know, it's intermission. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god we got here we got here so so if you'd asked if you'd asked us a couple of years ago how many parts is godfather part two going to be we would have said well two parts yeah. and we would have said the break would be at the intermission <laughs> well it ain't two parts and we're not going to take a break here let's keep going um uh we're back in tahoe it's winter Car comes through the gate. They lock the gate. But here's a funny story about the gate. So they told the Kaiser family, who owns this estate, anything we build here, you can keep. So they kept the band shell. They kept this other stuff. And this gate was rented. So so when they're done with renting it, they return it to the rental company. And the Kaiser family says, where's the gate? You said we could keep anything you build on the thing. And they're like, yeah, but it was rented. So we don't we don't actually own that. And the Kaiser family says, you said we could keep everything you built on our estate. And so they had to go buy the gate, <laughs> bring it back to the Kaiser estate wow. and build it. <laughs> but you said. <laughs> um, and what does Michael see as he's walking up to the house? But that little red car that was his gift that Tom bought for Anthony. Yep. Um, he looks so world weary at this point, right? Um, and, it, and and being winter is just perfect, right, Steve? The symbolism of winter, you know, when everything is cold and dreary, and he looks like the the place looks absolutely not lived in, um, and looks almost abandoned, like a ghost town. Yeah. And then he walks in, and Kay isn't even there to greet him, man. Kay isn't even there to to hug him or anything, you know. Yeah, well, well, and this is and where he he walks through this kind of empty, dead house, yeah, and then looks through a door, much like at the end of Godfather One, where it was Kay looking through a door mm. to see Michael. Now he is looking at a door to see Kay, who is sewing this red—I don't know if it's a dress or what it is. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Coppola's image for this is this is Penelope sewing while Odysseus is away. That was the mm. the the image in his mind. Right. They don't speak to each other. He kind of just puts his hand to his face, and it, the separation between the two of them is pretty right. powerful. And the symbolism yet again here, right? If you said the door situation. This is Kay, in essence, closing the door on Michael or beginning to close the door on Michael as well. That's exactly right. Because she's aborted the baby, which we find out now. So that she's closed the door already in her mind on Michael. So where we see her, we don't know that yet, but certainly now looking back on the film, it seems like she's closed the door on Michael at this point. Uh, you know what I wonder? Mm. Oh, no, actually, I don't wonder because I have the answer is that she had to have aborted the baby before the scene where Tom doesn't let her leave the estate. Yes. And 
she also said because Tom didn't like obviously if she's trapped in the in the house, she she couldn't have had an abortion after that. And the other thing about that is what does she say when she's trying to leave? She, she was just going to the store, but she also says, I was planning on taking the kids to New England to my family next week. That's when she was going to leave him. Yep. Yep. Great point, Steve. Damn, I've never caught that once when watching the movie. That's a great point. It literally just occurred to me right now. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, that's that's why this is a good movie, man. Yeah, I agree. And let me ask you another question. Do you think she knows he's there? When he when he comes in and yeah. she doesn't get up? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. I think she smells him. I think she senses him, you know? Yeah, she heard the door and she didn't fucking get up. Nope, not at all. Didn't even turn her back around. Which, by the way, whenever I've trapped Karen in my house and refused her permission <laughs> to leave, she's always also been a little, you know, miffed with me. <laughs> And rightfully so. <laughs> you say. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, we're at the Senate hearing. In the year 1942, to the present time, you were an employee of the Jenko Olive Oil Company. That's right. This is such, I took, I remember seeing this the first time, and it just it's such a change in tone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We don't know how we got here. We don't know. We're starting like right in the middle. Yeah. You know, we, we, we didn't hear any exposition about, oh, the senator, you're going to get called as a witness. Well, nothing. It's just, boom, we're into the middle of a Senate hearing. Uh, the actor playing the main senator is William Bowers. He's perfect casting. Oh, yeah. Perfect casting. And- the other guys on the panel, we have uh, a writer buddy, which is Richard Matheson. We have a producer buddy of Coppola's, which is Phil Thelman. And we have Roger Corman on the Senate as one of the senators. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and of course, as we said in our Coppola bio, that was his, some of his first gigs was working, working for Roger Corman. Yeah. As it was for everyone from Ron Howard and Martin Scorsese to James Cameron to Jonathan Demme to, you know, tons and tons of people work right. for Roger Corman. And this is our third movie that has a, a Roger Corman director put him in the film. Huh. He, he's in The Science of the Lambs. Jonathan mm -hmm. Demme put him in that. And he's in Apollo 13. Wow. Okay. I, I, I really wish I had had, had that Roger Corman experience. <laughs> I had the Fred Weintraub experience, which was similar. He's a, was a similar sort of producer. Yeah. 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 Working for him. Um, and by the way, this uh, Cheech is testifying. This is based on the Joseph Falachi hearings. Yeah, um, with papers. Yeah. yeah. With Pantangeli sort of being the Falachi and he was part of the Genovese family and, he, and Falachi is the first person to publicly acknowledge La Cosa Nostra, the mafia, the Italian mafia. At first, like everybody else, I, I was a soldier. What is that? A button, you know, Senator. Come on. No, I don't know. Tell me. Well, when the boss says push a button on a guy, I push a button. See, Senator? This is what you said before, is we're always talking in metaphor. Oh, yeah, code. Always. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we just had four years of people talking in code, if you know what I mean. Literally, was about to say the same thing. Y yep. <laughs> Yep. I mean, you remember when Michael Cohen is testifying yep. and they're saying, well, did he actually tell you to lie about this? And he's like, no, he doesn't tell you. Yeah. You know, that's what he wants. Right. By the way, we're going to get to a connection there in a minute mm -hmm. um, from this movie. Several yeah. of them. Yeah. It's a weird. This is the weird rabbit hole I went down. And I will get there in just a sec. Uh, was there always a buffer involved? 
There's someone in between you and your possible superiors who gave the actual order. <laughs> I love how he plays this. Right, yeah, buffer. The family had a lot of buffers. <laughs> We're back in Tahoe, and he goes and sits down next to mom. Mm -hmm. This scene is fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's the only vulnerable scene. Yeah. It's the only scene where we see Michael be unsure. Yeah. It's the scene maybe if she, mom had said something different hmm. that he might be able to change his direction. He says, what did Pop think deep in his heart? That's a, that's a lot of a question. Mm -hmm. He was being strong, strong for his family. And she nods and he says, but by being strong for his family, could he lose it? That's a really interesting word choice. Yep. Lose it. Right. And she immediately jumps to, oh, you're thinking about your wife and the baby that you lost. And he says, no, I meant lose the family. And mom says, but you can never lose your family. It feels like Michael's at a crossroads. Yes. What is the crossroads? Well, look, he's a, he's essentially about to lose everything now, Steve, right? Brother betrayed him. He didn't get that deal done and kill uh, Hyman so he can take over. Um, and uh, he lost the baby. And now people are testifying against him. So his entire empire might be crumbling out from under him as well. Because he dared to strive for more. He dared to uh, uh, achieve greatness and and move his family out of necessarily being the mob stuff into legitimate businesses and still be connected to the mob, use mob tactics, but have, you know, uh, uh, pieces of legitimate businesses. And now it's all falling apart, which is why in the past when I've watched the movie as a younger man, I felt sympathy for Michael in this moment. But as I'm an older man, this is what happens to people sometimes who have who used to riding high and thinking they're the cock of the walk in essence and better than everybody else because they happen to be winning in their life at that time. But life has a way of knocking you on your knees. And then all of a sudden, it's these same people who are like, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I should have, you know, blah, blah, blah. So this is what Michael is doing in this moment. The only reason he is weak or even asking for advice from his mom is because everything's falling away from him. He wouldn't give uh, a, he wouldn't have this conversation at all. If everything was working out for him, he wouldn't care at all, but everything's not. So now he's all weak and vulnerable to his mom. It's funny. I, it, of course, everything you said is totally motivated, motivatable, but I, mm -hmm. I see it in a different way. For, mm -hmm. First of all, I do. Feel, I still feel sympathy for him. Okay. I feel Michael's a horrible, awful person. That's what I'm saying. There's no question about it. It's just, I, I, I'm just empathetic. You know, it's just like, I can feel sympathy for a horrible, awful person, partially because he's so misguided. And because mm -hmm. the way I interpret this and, and, and is that this is the only time that he even entertains the thought that some of this might be his fault. Mm. Like, why did my brother betray me? Why is Connie gone drinking and carousing with all these men? Mm -hmm. Why 
is my why when I came home did my wife not even greet me? Yeah. Is it possible that something I that maybe I wasn't making the right choice? Mm-hmm. But then she says you can never lose your family. Right. She, because mom, I think, sees him as like Vito. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't think she sees who he really is. Well, she's the mom. She can't. Yeah. She loves her son too much, you know. And then he says, times are changing. That is might be the most weird, ambiguous line in the whole movie to me. Like, I mean, is he saying times are changing because of the Senate trials? Is he saying times are changing because of Fredo? Is what? No, yeah. I think he's saying it because where his mother is operating from and where she's always operated from is the old traditional way of doing things. So when she says to Michael, you can never lose your family, that's how it is for the people of that time, of her age, how they viewed family. That no matter what, Family matters above everything else. But Michael is saying times are changing. And which shows that like this traditional way of doing things or this these traditions that were commonly held amongst Italians, at least the way it's, the film is conveying it, uh, is not there anymore. You know, And the 70s uh, was certainly a time where all traditions were changing in so many ways, in so many segments of society. Sure. We're back to Vito, who now has a mustache. <laughs> and is looking older and has dressed better and more is his whole body posture has sort of changed, I think, yeah. mm-hmm. as he's become more confident. And he is buying some oranges. Yeah. Man, the Corleones love oranges. They do love those oranges, bro. And of course, this is what he what Vito is buying getting when he gets shot. Yeah. And just like in that scene, he goes to pay and the guy refuses it. Yeah. He says, take it as a gift. And then Vito says, if there's something I can do for you, you come and we talk. Yeah. And he points to his head again. Yeah. Because and it's so funny because mostly we only see Vito doing things for other people. Yeah. He does things for the baker. He does things for the undertaker. You know, he's always doing things for people. What an interesting difference between him and Michael. Yeah. Um, And then he goes into his house and there is a woman who is who his wife has brought in mm-hmm. um, because she's getting kicked out of her apartment because she had a loud dog and that the landlord won't uh, listen to her. And the wife, Vito's wife is saying, help her. Mm-hmm. And he gets the name of the landlord and he, we go out to the street and the landlord's in with a barber uh, and he comes out and Vito goes to talk to him. I love this guy. Oh yeah. He is so funny. Another Italian actor. And he introduces himself. He says what, you know, that there's this friend, this woman who's, you know, she's got no one to take care of. She's got no money and she doesn't have another place. And I want you to think about letting her stay. And he says, no, I already rented it for another family for more money. And Vito says, I told her I talked to you, that you're a reasonable man. Reasonable is always so important to Vito. Reason. And he, then he says, she got rid of the animal that caused the trouble. And the guy says, no. Yeah. And he asks are you, if he's Sicilian. And he, he says, no, he's Calabresing, which, by the way, that's where uh, Karen's family is from. Oh, it's Calabria. Wow. Okay. Um, and Vito asks, well, how much more is this other family paying? And he goes, it's five bucks a month. And he gives him a big roll of money. And now the landlords may be respecting this guy a little bit more. And I think he's actually maybe thinking I'm going to do this. Yeah. And then Vito says, of course, the dog stays. 
the dog that like a minute ago he said she got rid of yeah yeah <laughs> i think that's hilarious <laughs> and he yeah. says he gives the money back and he says dugats dugats <laughs> <laughs> Uh, which Karen says that was she heard that from her grandparents. That was a word that got used a lot. Ah. Um, Vito, first of all, says, do me this favor. I won't forget. And there's that same gesture to his head. And he tells him to ask around the neighborhood about me. <laughs> and the music is kind of fun. And we cut to later. And we're at Jenko's olive oil place. And <laughs> the, there's Roberto, the landlord. And he's walking up and he tries to get through the door and he struggles with it and he gets in and his attitude is totally transformed. Completely different. Completely different. He is scared shitless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and Vito's sitting behind the desk just as cool as can be. And he says, look, I didn't I didn't know who you were. And of course, she can stay. And and here's your money back. And, you know, and, and I love that he goes and sits down and then and then stands and asks yeah. permission to sit down. Right, right, right. <laughs> the rent stays like a buffalo. I'll, even, I'll lower the price. Five dollars. And Vito says nothing. Yeah. Ten dollars. <laughs> the, the quieter Vito is, the scarier. Yeah, yeah. And Vito goes to offer him some coffee. And he's like, no, 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 I got to go. And then he tries to get out of the room. <laughs> so here's what Coppola did. So this guy's a, a, a well-known Italian comedian. He's a great mm. improviser. And so Coppola put a little trick on the door that there's basically a nail that's hard to see that's holding the door closed. He didn't tell this to that actor. <laughs> so the actor thinks the door is going to open. Oh my God, that's terrible. And so he goes to open, it doesn't open, and he just keeps improvising <laughs> until Coppola gives a nod to Genko to yeah. go pull that little nail out and the guy can go. That's one where I'm kind of think I, I'm I'm fine with what Coppola did. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because it's, it's really really funny, and the music is fun. And we put up the Genko sign, and we see uh, Bruno Kirby is now a lot heavier because he's becoming the Clemenza we're going to get to know. Yep. And this is the American dream, you know. Welcome to America, and it's a slow dissolve from there back to the Senate hearings. Are you the son of Vito Corleone? <clears throat> yes, I am. And where was he born? Corleone, Sicily. And then our senator gets up to make a statement. <laughs> For years now, a growing number of my constituents have been of Italian descent. They have honored me with their support and with their friendship. Indeed, I can proudly say that some of my very best friends are Italian Americans. And he stands up and goes, unfortunately, I got to go. <laughs> yeah. Here's the guy who was willing to, you know, didn't say Corleone's name right. Just pissed all over him. And now he's like totally kissing his ass. Hilarious. Yeah. Makes a long speech, you know. <laughs> because I can state from my own knowledge and experience that Italian Americans are among the most loyal, most law-abiding, patriotic, hardworking American citizens in this land. Watch our, our particularly our main senator's reaction to this. Like, what the hell is happening? Mm -hmm. So they asked Michael, are you the head of the most powerful mafia family in the country? No. Yeah. Did you murder this police captain? A man named, I love that he mispronounces his name. Yeah. Virgil Salozzo. You deny this? Yes, I do. 
Did you plan the murder of the heads of the five families? It's a complete falsehood. They ask if he has a controlling interest in three hotels. And he says, I own some stock. And I love that Tom whispers in his ear. I also have stock in IBM and IT&T. Which is a great thing for the lawyer to say. He's saying, look, I'm just an American citizen. That's all I am. Okay, we've reached my rabbit hole. Okay. The guy asking that question is the lawyer on the Senate panel. And his name is Questot. Mm-hmm. He's played by an actor named Peter Donat, who, by yeah. the way, there's a theater company in San Francisco that my parents had season tickets to, which is ACT. Mm-hmm. Peter Donat was like the big actor at ACT. Oh, I wow. saw him a bunch, uh, you know, and in particular, I remember seeing him play King Lear. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's an amazing actor. His uncle is Robert Donat from The 39 Steps. Oh, the Hitchcock film. Yes. Yeah. And Goodbye, Mr. Chips, for which he won oh, Best yeah. Actor. That is not the rabbit hole. This is the rabbit hole. (laughs) This character, the lawyer working with the Senate, who we later find out is owned by Hyman Roth, is based on an actual person. Oh. The person he is based on is Roy Cohn. Oh, wow. Roy Cohn was a lawyer and worked on the Senate panel with uh, McCarthy. Yep. That's where he started. He was pretty much a scumbag. And he worked closely with Meyer Lansky. Meyer Lansky helped him out many, many times. And the rumor is that he and Lansky had blackmail photos on a whole bunch of politicians, including J. Edgar Hoover. Mm-hmm. And that, because one of the interesting things about Meyer Lansky is that he was never arrested. Yeah. Despite the fact that the FBI had a massive, massive file on him, they never moved on him. Yeah. Why did they never move on him? The rumor is because... They had nasty pictures of uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and we know that J. Edgar Hoover had some secrets that he wanted to keep secret. Yeah. So Roy Cohn was also, much later, a mentor of young Donald Trump. Yep. And in the early real estate days, Donald Trump, for instance, needed um, some concrete, and there was a strike from the union who did concrete, and the mobs controlled the unions, and Roy Cohn, of course, had all these mob ties. In fact, he had represented Carmine Galante and Paul Castellana. He represented these mobsters, and so strangely enough, when no one else could get concrete, Donald Trump did. Mm Mm-hmm. In uh, 1986, Cohn was finally disbarred for witness tampering and perjury. We will return to Roy Cohn (laughs) in the second installment of my strange rabbit hole. Uh, But anyway, that's who this Questot guy is based on. Yeah, Um, if if anybody wants more information on Roy Cohn, there's a great documentary that came out, I think from HBO last year. It is so incisive in its exploration of how insidious he really was. And the fact that he's Trump's mentor is actually no surprise when you see how Trump acted throughout his entire four years and is still acting now. So, yeah. Very much is all of all of the things he learned from Roy Cohn are his strategies. Uh-huh. And isn't this a deeper rabbit hole? Am I wrong on this? Isn't Pacino playing Roy Cohn in Angels in America in the TV version of it, the one that was on HBO? Yeah, he started it in a that was yeah that's that's that was he started in a stage play in 2010, yeah. and now he's playing him, which is crazy, right? Right. How weird the the connections are here. Yeah. Senator, my client would like me to state before this committee. I love when Duval gets Duvali because yeah. he has this weird rhythm and intensity in the way he speaks, and he says. He has not taken the Fifth Amendment as it was his right to do. So in all fairness, I think the statement should be heard. 
and the chairman allows it. And basically, Michael says, I'm a good American and you are besmirching my family's name. I wish to have the following noted for the record, that I served my country faithfully and honorably in World War II and was awarded the Navy Cross for actions in defense of my country. Which is a big deal. I mean, that's yeah. a serious, serious award. I challenge this committee to produce any witness or evidence against me. And if they do not, I hope they will have the decency to clear my name with the same publicity with which they now have besmirched it. Two things about this. One is watch Kay sitting behind him. Mm -hmm. Because she is um, maybe playing the dutiful wife. Yeah, yeah, for now. But man, there's a lot going on with her. And the mm -hmm. second thing, and this is the thing I find so interesting. Michael Corleone in this moment is entirely without charisma. Mm -hmm. He is so uninteresting. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing to me that Al Pacino, who has tons of charisma and is yeah. ex exudes energy throughout both of these, or all of these films, it's just so much intensity, was able to just turn it all off. Yeah. You know? Because it fit his purposes. Yeah. Well, and I also think, what you said before, is Michael Corleone is an introvert. Yeah. Speaking in front of big crowds, that's not his thing. Yeah, it's not his thing. I'm sure we're all quite impressed, Corleone, particularly with your love for our country. <laughs> Dripping with sarcasm. Yeah. And he says, we're going to recess because we got a big witness coming who's going to prove that you've committed perjury. Cut to Frank Pantangeli. Ten to one shot, you said. Ten to one shot, he would take the fifth, and I lose. Who we've, I think at this point, you've kind of forgotten about him. Right, right. You know? So much has happened, yeah. Yeah, and he's in a safe house. And what we hear is basically he's going to be trapped in a house like this under house arrest for the rest of his life. And one of the FBI guys guarding him is Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, right, it is. Got a big day tomorrow. Got you a new suit, new shirt, new tie. And you're going to look respectable for 50 million of your fellow Americans. What's so great with Frank is that you could see all the conflict within him. Mm -hmm. The unhappiness about the situation, the fact that he he doesn't like the idea of turning on Michael. Alive. Pantangeli is alive. Let me get the hands on Roth. He thought you double-crossed him, and now he's, you know, turning state's evidence. Michael asks, is there a way to get to him? It's like, no, it's 24-hour guards by the FBI. There is no way to get to him. What about Fredo? What does he know? He says he doesn't know anything, and I believe him. Fredo lied to Tom. Yeah. Because he does know more. Mm -hmm. Yet again, Fredo. And then Michael says, I want to talk to Fredo. Yeah. It's an incredible scene. Yeah. First of all, just the way it's shot, this is a fantastic location in this boathouse. The snowy background outside all these big windows and the way it's exposed. And what what when you when you shoot something, you're going to expose for something in the frame. So like if I'm shooting you right now, I'd hold a light meter up to your face and I would say, OK, this is exactly the aperture is in my camera in order to have your face perfectly lit. And let's say there was something that's few stops darker with my light meter behind you, well, that mm -hmm. stuff would be really dark. Yeah. And so you're going to pick what in the frame you're going to expose for. So something will be exposed perfectly and other things will be either too bright or too dark. And in general, the thing that you expose for is your face is a face because mm -hmm. that's what we want to see. Yeah. In this scene, what they actually expose for is the buildings in the background. 
Hmm. So they're bright and clear and crystal, you know, and our guys are slightly in shadow. Yeah. So they chose not to expose perfectly for their faces. And the shot is stunning. Mm -hmm. Fredo is in this chair, this weird low slung. It's like a baby's bouncy seat. It's a, yeah, exactly. It, it's uh, Ikea sells chairs like this that uh, I forget what the name of it is, but Locking you can <laughs> something like that. Yes. But you sit in it and I had a chair like this for a while and I changed, I traded it in for a, for a recliner, but like I, you, you sit on it, but you like kind of lay back on it. Uh, and it does, it's not a flattering position to be in, but it's comfortable. Uh, and so seeing Fredo, it is such a brilliantly dominant versus submissive scene. Fredo is in is almost in essence lying on the ground in front of Michael, who is standing. Michael never sits down. Michael stands, uh, and he dictates the questions to Fredo. And Steve, what's so interesting is once we come out of Cuba, remember before we got to Cuba, it was sunny, it was vibrant, it was all of these things and parties. But once we get out of Cuba, it's snow. It's the uh, it's fall and you see the you see the water behind Michael and uh, and uh, Fredo and it's like choppy water which is great symbolism. Uh, it looks like it's overcast, so it's just, all of it just lends itself to the mood of the scene and the mood of the back half of the movie. One thing that's interesting too, John Cazale, his body, his the way oh, he positions yeah. himself, whether it was the cafe with Michael in this scene. Later on the funeral scene, just he's always in some weird kind of yeah. position that's just totally unique. Yeah. And we start with him saying, I haven't got a lot to say, Mike. And Michael says very softly. We have time. And Fredo says they got Frank Pantangeli. That's all I can tell you. So right there. Yeah. Michael knows that he lied to Tom. Right. And... He's going to find out that Fredo is lying to him right here as well, because mm -hmm. that isn't all he knows. Yep. I didn't know it was going to be a hit, Mike. I swear to God, I didn't know it was going to be a hit. First of all, do you believe him? Uh, I actually do believe him, because I think Fredo's dumb enough to have put himself in this position without uh, exploring all the possibilities in his head. How, how, how would he not think that it was going to be a hit, you know? Well, well, well that brings up my second question. I do believe him here, I, mm -hmm. I think. Okay. What information did he give them? Right. Because you sort of think like, and, and what he says in this, you know, it's like, oh, maybe he gave him some financial information mm -hmm. or something. But if he says, I didn't know it was going to be a hit, some of the information he gave them must have helped with the hit. Yes. Because otherwise he would have said, look, I gave them, you know, your bank account, right. you know, or something like that. But he must have actually told them where the guards were at the compound or something yep. like that. Where his bedroom was. Where his bedroom was. Where his, where his wife sleeps and his children come to play with their toys. You and, and Roth were in on a, a big deal together. He said, that he, he said that you were being tough on the negotiations. But if they could get a little help and close the deal fast, it would be good for the family. You believe that story? He doesn't answer mm -mm. that he believed that. He says... He said there was something in it for me on my own. Which means he didn't believe that. Yeah. He knew that he was betraying the family. Yes. And Michael says, I've always taken care of you. 
what John Cazale does next is just, yeah. he's such a good actor, man. The, the physicality of it, the way he holds his hand in his arm. And of course, this is a podcast, but I'm simulating it as I'm talking to Steve. The way he holds it is so unusual, but it's perfectly submissive. It's perfectly, it's just, in essence, flailing. Taking care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? It's all his complaints that he's wanted to say since day one, and he's uh, since the, I think since the moment they sent him to Vegas, this is Fredo with all the complaints, you know, uh, rolling out against uh, to Michael. And I think this is the moment where Michael could have been understanding and he isn't. And this is where Michael fails as a brother because he doesn't hear where Fredo was coming from. And in essence, Steve, almost a Fanucci moment in that Michael, when he makes the decision to kill his brother, it's a status thing. I can't be seen as weak. Someone who betrays me and betrays the family must die, even if it's my brother. Uh, and that's, you know, in this moment when he's having the conversation, he, there is a possibility that Michael can be like understanding, but he isn't. The physicality to me, it's almost like the physical manifestation of his lack of intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's infantile yeah. in an odd way. Yeah. It's sort of like not like he's fully in control of his body it's 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 a kind of a strange weakness even though it's very intense yeah and 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 i i totally agree because i think what fredo is complaining about is totally justified mm -hmm. he has been treated like shit send fredo off to do this send fredo off to do that let fredo take care of some mickey mouse nightclub somewhere send fredo to pick somebody up at the airport michael went fredo is stupid and he's weak and this is life and death. Right. And so he just froze him out. And and this is, you know, it's so funny because I, I've so come to your way of thinking, by the way, when, you know, we talked so long ago about was, would, was Sonny a good Don? Yeah. You know, and now, although he's not as intelligent as Michael and wouldn't have been able to make all these moves Michael made, mm -hmm. Sonny would have cared for Fredo. Right. You know, cause Sonny didn't hate who he was. Yeah. Sonny mm. didn't hate he was Italian. Sonny didn't hate that he came from a family that was a mafia family or a mob family, whatever you want to say. Sonny appreciated that. And yes, he was a hothead. Yes, he was emotional. Yes, he was insulting to the um, photographers and, you know, spit on, you know, all of that. But the reason he dies is to protect his sister. Um, the reason he sends Fredo to Vegas and has his security uh, uh, has his security taken care of. Remember what Michael says, you know, mm -hmm. you, we bankrolled the, I forget it, the minutes or whatever it was to make sure Fredo was taken care of. So it was, it was not a expense on Mo Green's side. Um, it's all to protect his brother as well, to teach him. Maybe he can't be a mafia guy, but maybe he can figure out Vegas. He's, you know, he, he's got that instinct. Maybe he can be a success there, but Michael gives him no credit. Absolutely none and treats him like a child. And also, and I don't I don't know, uh, Steve, if I'm saying this correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, I don't know many introverts that are good at having that emotional conversation and speaking about these things. And not because they're not empathetic people, but because sometimes they don't understand that connective process. I don't know all, obviously, but some. And so uh, I think in this moment, 
or I think all of this could have been avoided. And remember that uh, uh, the meeting they have or the when they go out for drinks in Cuba, all of this could have been avoided. And which is what Fredo is trying to say. If Michael and Fredo had had a conversation where Michael said to him, hey, man, I, I'm not going to give you the piece of the pie. I'm not going to. But I am going to tell what do you need? What can I help you with? What can I what, what, what do you need? Uh, I want something that's mine. Great. Tom, let's figure out something, a piece of the pie we can give him that he can run. Don't make it anything too crazy. And let's see what he can do with it. But Michael immediately dismisses him as useless and treats him as such. So really, as is, as is the case throughout the whole movie, Michael is the architect of his own demise without knowing that he's the architect of his own demise until it's too late. So many, so many great points there and so much to discuss the, just on the intro, introvert extrovert thing. Yeah. First of all, I just read a fantastic book on introverts mm -hmm. and it's cause see if I can find the name. Yeah, of tell it. me it is called quiet. The power of introverts in a world that can't stop talking. Okay. I'm going to put and that on my Amazon. Go and it's by Susan Cain. It's really good. Okay. And it's really insightful of like <laughs> how we got this way. And it, but it also in talking about introverts, of course, it has to talk about extroverts because you know, it has both. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so funny that you say that about introverts, because in, in my experience, I always think that it's the introverts who have much better emotional intelligence and ability to talk over mm -hmm. sensitive issues and stuff because we're sensitive, you know, like that's, Fascinating. you know, and, okay. and so, and, and, and of course the reality is, is there are awesome extroverts who are great at this stuff and yeah. they're awesome and some that are terrible yeah. and there are awesome introverts that are great at this stuff and some that are terrible. Yeah. You know, like for me, uh, you know, it's like I, because I had such a hard time learning how to be social and I had social anxiety, mm. I I observe so much and I feel very uh, empathetic and connected to the people in the room and mm -hmm. able to navigate some of those weird emotional things. Like yeah. I like I would never let this happen to Fredo. Right. You know? Exactly. Well, that's that's a fair point. Right. The communication issue there. You'd, you'd make it clear from the beginning. Well, no. I mean, as we're recording this, we had a communication issue about something. So it's very interesting. Well, but, but, uh, that, but how but do we not not overall? Right. Exactly. We but, navigated it. Yeah. Yeah. We navigated it really well because I was because I was you, you wrote to me. This is what happened. And then yeah. you said, but I know you would never be malicious, which, of course, I never would. Right. And I immediately felt terrible and like. You know, and it's like, oh, we will work to resolve this and we yep. have to make sure everything's okay because right. we are mature people <laughs> <laughs> That's right. who can communicate. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like having having relationships, having good relationships doesn't mean you will have the absence of conflict right. or misunderstanding. No, absolutely. You know, my wife and I have conflict. You and I are going to have conflicts. Yeah. That's just, you know, that's the nature of life. Yeah. Um, Lily and I have conflict for sure. Every once in a while, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's like if, if, if I walk into the house and my wife is upset, I feel it instantly. Yeah. Like, it, you know, even, you know, on, by the tone of her voice, by the way she moves, I'm like, oh, something's up, you know, <laughs> like, um, and but so that's one thing. So the next thing, I think you hit the nail so totally on the head. And I think you made it much clearer. For, I kind of knew this, but I really liked the way you said it, which is basically Michael hates himself. Yes. You know, is yes. that is that he hates the image. Well, and when we're going to get to it, it's like Michael chose to join the Navy mm -hmm. when his family didn't want him to. Why? Because he wanted to prove that he was a real American, yeah. not an Italian, not the member of this mob family. And I think one of the big motivations, and this is what clicked for me when you said that, it's not just that Fredo betrayed him. Mm -hmm. 
He's embarrassed by Fredo. Yes. Fredo yes. embarrasses him. Right. Connie embarrasses him. Yeah. You know, they make him look bad. Mm-hmm. You know, as a, and, and Steve, I'm sure you can speak to this as well in your own community, but I know there are people in the Latino community who hate that they're Latino, who would love to be white in a heartbeat. Like they would love if they could convert tomorrow to being white. And they act that way. And they you know, are that way. I, I'm sure that happens in every ethnic community. There are people who hate that they're part of that ethnic community and wish they could be part of the overall majority of whatever country or city they're in. Uh, and I think Michael hates that he's Italian. Yeah. I think Michael hates that he's got this thing. And look at the bodyguards he surrounds himself with, right? These are lighter skinned people than... Uh, Vito did. Vito had, Vito had Luca Brasi. He had Clemenza. He had Tessio. Mm. These are olive-skinned Italian people. Michael has Neri and, uh, and Rocco. Rocco. Yeah. And even the dude who's uh, who you said is a Hungarian sculptor. He doesn't look <laughs> Italian at all. But these are the people that Michael surrounds himself. That's, that's a great point. Um, yes, I, I think uh, that's absolutely true about immigrant populations. And it's mm. a tension we see all the time between jettisoning your culture and holding on to it, you know? Um, And it's funny because I I know I've said it on the podcast before, I don't know when, but you know, my family all came before the turn of the century or almost all before the turn of the century. They were all reformed Jews, mostly from Germany, Prussia, Poland, and relatively educated. And that generation wanted to assimilate. Part of it is they weren't Orthodox they didn't keep kosher in the home. And so they wanted to be just like you said, they wanted to be white. And then the next generation of Jews that came after the turn of the century were more Russian, more religious, more Eastern European. And my ancestors didn't like them. Yeah. And so they actually did projects like established charities, essentially, to make those people more American. <laughs> We'll educate you and we'll teach you to speak yeah. English and don't eat that weird Jewish food. Don't speak yeah. Yiddish, you know, because yeah. they were embarrassed by this next generation of people, yeah. you know, and that's it, it's so funny because it's like be who you are. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, we're so lucky that there are all these cultures that bring all this great stuff. And like, right. that's great, you know. Yeah. But again, Sonny would have never tried to do what Michael no. was doing as much as people revere Michael in the second movie. You know, as you get older, you kind of analyze Michael in a different way. And you see that Sonny would have Sonny would have been quite happy just running what he just wanted to respect. He wanted to establish the Corleone family back on top again and run it from there. Michael wants to drag, rip the Corleone family out of its Italian heritage and try to homogenize it completely. He marries a white woman. You know, he wants to have that kind of life himself. You know? Well, and I think what Vito says to him, Senator Corleone. Yeah. Governor Corleone. I think that's in his head that will haunt him forever. Mm-hmm. And and all of this comes down on Fredo. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. And then, oh, it hurts so much. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. Not dumb. Smart. And Michael gives him nothing. Nothing. Just lets him sit in that bouncy chair in his misery. Yeah. Ignores that whole outburst and says, Is there anything you can tell me about this investigation? Anything more? 
and Fredo slumps. It was his last attempt for respect, and he realizes he's never going to get it from Michael. Have you ever had this situation? I've had this where I went, Mm. the thing that had been building up inside of me, I finally went, look, yeah, and got nothing. Yep. That, and, and it's where it's like, I can think of a couple of examples and it's where mm-hmm. I went, Oh, this relationship isn't what I thought it was. Yep. You know? I, I don't want to mention her name again, but yes, yes. I had that multiple times in a certain relationship where I, that you just like, you know, and you don't get the reaction at all. And the reaction you do get is so wow. Like I, t- I took my heart out. It's beating in yeah. my hand Yeah. and you went, eh. Yeah. What's on TV. Yeah. And then he, after he slumps, he, he, he admits that the lawyer belongs to Roth. So he was still lying to him. And then Michael digs the knife even, even deeper when he says after this, and I think I'm right, Steve, I don't think there's another exchange. I no, think he says it. to him, you know, he says, uh, you're nothing to me now, Fredo. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. I don't want to see you at the hotels. I don't want you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. It's just utter, utter, just complete and utter uh, disconnection emotionally, uh, family-wise from this person. He has ceased to be anything of importance to Michael. That's terrible. Well, and it's what's weird is he warned them because in Godfather One he says, "You're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again, ever." He did. He did. And now he did. Fredo did that, and the the plaintive sort of Mikey that he calls out, "Oh, Mikey!" And then he walks by Neary and says, "I don't want anything to happen to him." Oh, my mother's alive. Oh, God. It's brutal. Because he just told Neri, I'm going to kill my brother when my mother is dead. That's what he just said. Neri's almost embarrassed in his reaction, which is a great job by that actor. Embarrassed. He he does a lot with very little. Yes. You know, um, (laughs) we at a military base and there's Harry Dean Stanton in a uniform and there's Frank in a uniform because um, they're getting him out of the, out of witness protection to have him go testify. We're back at the hearing. Frank Pantangeli comes in. He's hilarious in this entire scene. More people in a ball game. <laughs> and then he turns and he sees Michael coming in, getting, you know, searched and yeah. looking terrifying. And then there's this other guy. Yeah. And the guy makes eye contact with Frankie and there's a reaction yeah. And you could see him processing this whole thing yep. as the committee is coming to order. Yeah. Uh, by the way, here's what Coppola says about this scene. He says they rehearsed it in the morning and that Michael Gazzo was amazing, perfect. And then because of timing, they had a break for lunch because mm-hmm. you have union rules and there's a certain amount of time. If you don't break, you get all these meal penalties and stuff like that. Right. So they break for lunch and uh, – uh, he had the actor had a couple of drinks at lunch, <laughs> came back to the set a little bit soused, and Coppola says the performance never matched what he did in rehearsal, which to me is crazy because I think his performance in this scene is amazing. <laughs> I agree. Um, 
so they ask him where he's from and they ask him about Michael and Frankie is Frank is still looking over at this other guy. Were you a member of the Corleone family under Vito Corleone, also known as the Godfather? I, uh, I never knew no Godfather. I got my own family, Stenidus. The way he plays stupid in this oh. scene is so funny. It's so great. I don't know nothing about that. And they're like, look, you're, we have a yeah. sworn statement. Like you're vile, you're perjuring yourself. Yeah. You know, and he says, Look, the FBI guys, they promised me a deal. So I, so I made up a lot of stuff about Michael Corleone because that's what they wanted. But, but it was all lies. Uh, everything. And I kept saying, uh, uh, Michael Corleone did this, and uh, Michael Corleone did that. So I said, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> He's awesome. Yeah. And then in this moment, I don't believe it all. They they say, they ask them to identify the guy sitting next to Mr. Corleone. And Tom says that this is Vincenzo Pantangeli. That's his brother. And they say, well, can you have him come forward and be sworn? Sir, this man does not understand English. He came at his own expense to aid his brother in his time of trouble. And they let it go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, look, you could get an Italian translator. <laughs> like, that's not a... I mean, clearly some crazy thing just happened, but they yeah. let it go and they go, okay, it's adjourned and Michael has won. Yeah. Okay. First of all, the scene is fascinating. I love yes. that we get so little explanation of what this was. And now I would like to finish my rabbit hole. Okay, go ahead. Because this is where it went and it got so damn weird. So the lawyer that is there is based on Roy Cohn. Right. Roy Cohn, as we said, was a mentor to Donald Trump. The other person that he was a mentor to is Roger Stone. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Roger Stone kind of studied at his feet. And if you look at kind of the dirty political tricks, because he called himself a dirty trickster yeah. and the way he aggressively pushed in all directions throughout his uh, political his career is all based on what he learned from Roy Cohn. Mm. Roger Stone was, of course, arrested as part of the Mueller investigation. Yep. And he was arrested for witness tampering yep. and for a guy who was a comedian named Randy uh, Credico, I think is his name. Mm -hmm. And he had called him up and said, you know, called him a rat and a stoolie and a maggot and a, I believe a disloyal fuck. And he told him to go fuck himself for, for testifying to Mueller. And yep. do you remember the big thing that he told him, which is why he got arrested? The number one reason that he was arrested for witness tampering. No, no, say, tell me. He told him he should do a Frank Pantangeli. Wow. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah. This is where I went. Like the world's collided in my brain. Yeah. It's like the guy in the scene with Frank Pantangeli is based on the guy who trained the guy who was arrested for witness tampering by telling a guy to pull a Frank Pantangeli. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, right? Yeah. It, it just, it's like the, uh, the Sopranos quoting the Godfather all through. It's, it's beyond meta the way that works out. Yeah. Totally. Okay. We have reached, we just had a super hard scene. <laughs> we have reached a scene that is so brutal. Michael, I'm not going back to Nevada. I brought the children to say goodbye to you. 
And you can tell this is a prepared speech. You know, she's worked on this. She says, I want you to know I'm very happy for you. I suppose I always knew you were too smart to let any of them ever beat you. It's a great line. Yeah. Because it's also saying like, you know, the Corleone family is going to be legitimate in five years. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, no, it's never going to be legitimate. Yeah. You are, you are the criminal that they believe that you are mm -hmm. and you just beat them. But that doesn't make, that's not a compliment. And Michael still thinks he can talk his way through this. There's some things I'd like to talk to you about. Some things that have been on my mind. Changes I want to make. I think it's too late for changes, Michael. I promised myself I wasn't going to say anything, and now I feel too late. What did she promise herself she wasn't going to say? Um, the abortion thing, don't yeah. you think? Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. And what's interesting is if I say to you, John, I promised myself I wasn't going to say this. Well, then I'm going to say it. <laughs> yeah, of course. You're laying the ground. You know? And what's so funny is he doesn't, he interrupts that. Yeah. Because even here, he's not listening to her. Nope. Because Michael has no emotional sensitivity to other people. Right. He says, what do you mean it's too late? And he sits down, undoes his tie. And as I said before, he is the most dangerous when he's sitting. Oh, yeah. He's really scary. He has this ability to project violence. Mm -hmm. Vito never did that. Yeah. Even when he's being violent, mm -hmm. he projects kindness. Yeah. You know, and connection. And she asked what really happened with Frank. And we find out that this was Frank's brother and that now this guy's on a plane back to Sicily. So let me ask you this question first. Yeah. What happened with Frank? What did the brother bring the brother mean? Well, uh, it's, it's, I don't know, it's from the old country, this idea of being a stoolie, this idea of being a rat, a stupid, it's disrespectful, it brings shame onto the family, and it, which stretches, you know, into the family that's actually in the other country. So that's what that was, him his, having his older brother show up to look at him, uh, and it, it's what stopped Pentangeli in the end, you know, and Michael, to his shameless credit, is like, oh, it's between the brothers, Kay, bullshit. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Like you yeah. you went and got him yeah. and flew him here. Yeah. You know, you can't say it was nothing to do with it. It's funny. So what, what I kind of in reading, yeah. now, does this brother show up in Godfather 3 or anything about him? No, or no, Pantan okay. no Pantan nothing in Pantanjali at all. So in Godfather lore, it's exactly what you said. And I think because there's also Godfather video games and some yeah. other characters are filled out and stuff is that it is that he is also sort of part of this kind of mob family thing and that he is shaming Frank Pantangeli and that's sort of, but that's not, not how I ever interpreted it. I interpreted it as a threat. Oh, if, really? Yeah. I always interpreted oh. it as if you don't do what we want, we're going to kill your brother. Wow. We oh. have, that's what I always thought. Okay. Okay. But, but like I said, in reading and studying mm -hmm. it, it's, it, everyone says it's what, it's what you saw. So that's a, right. maybe the better interpretation. Yeah. And Duvall says it when he's having the conversation with Pantangeli later, he says, uh, you know, well, Pantangeli says it actually, he says, you know, my brother could have been a big deal. He could have had his own family, but he never wanted to, you couldn't get him out of that two donkey town or whatever he says. Yeah. And we cut out to the kids in the hall. And I think this is, and Coppola talks about this too. It's, it's again, it's a small detail. Anthony is leaning against the wall. Yeah. And the daughter, whose name I don't know, is like skipping and playing. Mm -hmm. Because Anthony is old enough to know that things are really bad. Yeah. And the daughter isn't. She's just being a kid. She doesn't understand what's happening. And now we hear some yelling. 
Michael says, you are my wife and my children, and I won't allow it. Michael, you say you love me, and then you talk about allowing me to leave. And again, he's like, there are things going on for, for years between men and women, and they will not change, and that's it. Ah, the old Sicilian, old school thing. <laughs> My my guess is, and I don't. I, I, I now I have to be try to be sensitive and say this in the right way. My guess is you grew up with more of this stuff than I did. Oh yeah, oh yeah. My yeah, my dad, my dad's family, my dad and my dad's family really more than my mom and my mom's family, because my dad's family was very male centric. My mom's family is three sisters and one brother, and the brother is uh, you know not uh, so I'll say he's a little weak. But like uh, my dad's family was all these alphas slamming into each other all the time. And uh, yeah, very much so. And the traditions of all and the appearance of it all, the super frustrating to deal with. There was, so you know, some traditional male, female stuff with my parents, but it was very equal. And my dad just idolized my mom, you know, right. and my mom's super smart. So, so is my dad. He was also very smart in a different way. But like it was very clearly shared leadership. This was my dad's stuff. This was my mom's stuff. Not not like men are men kind of. I never grew up with any of that. Well, my my dad was that initially. It was when he got older and me and my brother and my sister and my mom would have to talk to him about these impulses because it's driven from the place of like needing to be in control constantly. And we, you know, you realize you get older, didn't have a lot of self-confidence, didn't have a lot of strength within himself for certain things, which is why uh, he would resort to these things that it, when we were younger. But when we got older, he kind of understood it. And eventually, as as he got diabetes and then cancer, of course, he was very uh, apologetic and understanding of what had gone on before. You know, he's not, my dad loved us to pieces, loved my mom, never cheated on my mom. He loved my mom to pieces. My mom loved my dad too. It just at times, my dad was a bit of the macho Latino when he was younger and it caused problems in the house. As I said, it wasn't until he got into his forties and fifties that that changed. Yeah. It's so funny how, and this is obviously Michael being the most extreme version of this is like mm. how the pursuit of external, the pursuit of, of creating a perfect version of what people think of you yeah, is so empty. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't get you anything, you know? I mean, yeah, Maybe it does in terms of there's some status things and, you know, but I don't think it gets you any of the internal stuff. It doesn't help you inside. If you chase you know. status, once you achieve it, you just spend the rest of your life trying to keep it. And there's, it's an empty, empty pursuit if you haven't fixed what's wrong with you inside. And that's the truth. I don't think I've ever really chased status. Mm. I've chased success in ways that maybe weren't as healthy but it's it's funny it's it's like the it's why it's part of why i like directing is like for me i want status i want status for the cinephiles you know what i mean i want people to love my film i don't care as much if it's about me you know what i mean it's about creating something that's really good that's what i that's what i care about mm -hmm. anyway if we digress like this we'll never ever <laughs> get to the end of the godfather because what we come back to in this scene is she says he's been blind. You've become blind, Michael. Look, look what's happened to us, Mike. My God, look what's happened to our son, Michael. And he says, nothing's happened to our son. 
And then they scream together and we can't quite hear what both of them are saying. She is saying Anthony is not fine. You will. I don't want to hear about it. Anthony, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about it. And she says something about Anthony, but we don't hear what it is. Right. What's wrong with Anthony? I don't know, to be honest with you. Is he not paying attention at school? Is he getting into fights? Um, I don't know. You know, I think it's I think it's bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My God, look what's happening to our son. Right. That's not a that's not a you're not getting good grades. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a that's a you're talking about harming yourself. Yeah. Kind of thing. Maybe. And then he just ends the wants to end the conversation. Over. And he goes and gets a drink of water. He's in the foreground and she's in the background. And she says, at this moment, I feel no love for you at all. And what's so terrible, like we just saw him with Fredo and Fredo put pulled his heart out. Yeah. And he gave her gave him nothing. And now his wife is yeah. taking her heart out. And he gives her nothing mm-hmm. except anger. I mean, it's worse than Fredo. Michael, you haven't heard me. Okay. What do you want from me? Do you expect me to let you go? Do you expect me to let you take my children from me? Don't you know me? Don't you know that that's an impossibility, that that could never happen? That I'd use all my power to keep something like that from happening? Don't you know that? Talk to me about that speech. Well, I mean, that's now this is what you see in relationships sometimes between uh, men and uh, men of, I don't know, what do you want to say? Men who need to be in control of a relationship. Like once they've, he's used all the tactics in the book, right? He even says, oh, I can change. I've, I've realized that I have the power to change. It's all that I'm sure any of the women who are listening to our show right now have had a, maybe have had a guy in their life who's been like just completely either abusive or, um, not paid attention to them uh, or not, not not put them as a priority in their lives. And the second you leave them, they'll try every tactic in the book in that conversation, you know, uh, flattery, then, uh, uh, you know, completely and utter submissiveness and saying, I, I can change. Give me a chance. I can change. I promise, which people don't change overnight. They just don't. Uh, and, and then anger to try to control the situation or, in some infantile way to try to get shots in so they can somehow uh, uh, climb back up into a, a, a powerful position after having surrendered a little bit of ground. And so that's what Mike, I see Michael using all those tactics, but they're useless against a woman who's made up her mind. And Kay's made up her mind when she says at this moment, I feel no love for you at all. I never thought that would happen. And it's done, you know? And so he's doing all this stuff to try to force her and he's desperate. I think it goes way beyond what you just said. I think everything okay. you said is true. Okay. But when a man who is a known murderer says, don't you know I'd use all my power to keep something from like that from happening? Mm. Don't you know that? Oh, well, it's certainly a threat. It it's is a, certainly a threat. It is, and it is not an empty threat. You know what right. I mean? It is a scary. This guy has literally said, I will do anything and I mean, it's really, really a scary, scary moment. I don't think he'd ever kill Kay, actually, but I do think he'd get all of his lawyers to destroy her life for years upon years. I, I don't know what Michael wouldn't do. I really don't. Um, That's fair, considering what we're about to get to. I know you blame me for losing the baby. 
I know what that meant to you. Watch Diane Keaton. She's such a great, great actor. Mm-hmm. She's so good. You know, to you know, to be able to be the person who plays the quirky, fun Annie Hall, right? A few years after that, this and to play this scene, uh, and he says, "I'll make it up to you. I swear, I'll make it up to you." And this is just what you said. It's all those tactics. Yep. You know, threats. I can change. I'll change. I've learned that I have the strength to change. <laughs> That's a weird line. Um, because I has he learned that? No, of course not. Uh, and he says, and you'll forget about the miscarriage and you'll have another child and we'll go on. Yeah. And she laughs. Oh, oh, Michael. Michael, you are blind. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. This is, it's so painful and powerful. And this last, I think this is finally, this is what she promised herself she wouldn't say. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm sure you've done this too, which is that you yeah. think of the really cruel thing to say. Of course. Yeah, yeah. And then you go, and, and part of you, maybe even in certain situations, fantasizes about <laughs> destroying the person with this thing. Yeah. And, but you say, but I, but of course I can't do that. Right. But, but she well, does. We used to have a joke, you know, in, in our group was old Roka versus uh, new Roka, right? And, you know, when I was in my angrier days in my 30s and, um, yeah, about early 40s, uh, I would fight to win and to win. Yeah. And so any ammunition was considered game if I felt the situation had gotten to the point. Nuclear stuff, you know, and so... That's before, of course, therapy, before really come to terms with a lot of my anger and all of that. And that's journey, you know, everyone probably listening or maybe some of you listening, so sorry, have gone on. And yes, when you say, I'm sure you've had this moment. Yeah, I've had this moment a few times. Uh, And it's, it's, uh, it's embarrassing to remember those times, but you also know, you know, that was a time passed and I was in a different, I was a different person then. And the same thing here, like what Kay's doing though, Kay is doing this as a final, yeah. b- a final missile. The only missile she has left to launch at this point at Michael. Well, just back on what you said a moment ago is yeah. that you found that you could change, right? You actually did have the power to change, but it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. No, it took a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she says, an abortion, Michael. Just like our marriage is an abortion. Something that's unholy and evil. Oh. oh my God. You know what I think about in that moment, unholy and evil, is Michael saying, renouncing Satan in the midst of doing murders. Right, right, right. That is unholy and evil. But by the way, Stephen, I want to make this clear. And I, this is kind of a, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm walking both lines here. She's not free from guilt here. I want to make this very, very clear. Yes, she's upset. And you may not agree with me on this, but I feel this way. She's upset. She's mad. She's saying things. And she's right. She's right to leave Michael. Michael's a a dangerous person. Michael's clearly not a loving person anymore towards her. But she knew what the hell he was when she got together with him. She knew he was a mafia guy. She knew he was. She purposely turned her face away from the things that he was doing and enjoyed the life he was providing her until she realized it wasn't the life she wanted. Um, and so she was on her journey. Do you know what I'm saying? But she's not free from guilt. She has the moral upper hand here for sure, but she's not free from guilt as being part 
of this situation uh, and, uh, and not walking away from this when she realized uh, that Michael was uh, going to take over the mafia, going to take over the family and do terrible things to make sure the mafia stayed in power. I I totally agree with you. I think she I think she knew he killed Salazzo when he left town. Absolutely. And I think she liked it on some level, you know, and I think she consciously turned a blind eye to it and I think caught herself in a trap. But yeah. Michael is a sociopathic murderer yeah, who exactly. is threatening her and is a you know, like so the right. degrees of yes. culpability in the situation totally. are very different. And she says, I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. Which of course is what he asked Tom about the miscarriage. Was it yeah. a boy? Yeah. yeah. Um, and man, you know. It's redundant. Watch Al Pacino. The intensity, the power, the the seething inner turmoil that's happening, the anger. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. I know now that it's over. I knew it then. There would be no way, Michael, no way you could ever forgive me. Not with this Sicilian thing. Okay, so before we get to the next, yeah, this is this is as you say, this is the nail in the coffin. If I tell Michael that I aborted his son, we yeah. cannot have a marriage. Yeah, that's what she thinks. Yeah, and then Michael hits her. Not with this Sicilian thing that's been going on for two thousand years. <laughs> and I've seen a lot of choreographed slaps. I've seen stage slaps. I've mm -hmm. done stage slaps where you actually hit the person or been hit. I'm sure you've done it too. Yes. This is at a whole other level. Well, and I think Diane Keaton has said it in either in the documentaries or in the um, uh, uh, commentary tracks that they had practiced it a certain way, but that uh, Al or maybe Francis didn't feel it looked realistic. And then Al just kind of cocked her. And you can tell from her reaction, like that was real. It was real. And they had to have a conversation apparently afterwards. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is the 1970s, right? Uh, a lot of female actresses weren't maybe willing to stand up in that moment and be like, oh, what the fuck did you just do? Nowadays, you couldn't get away with that shit at all. But like the, back then, maybe the pressure on her to kind of you know push back a little bit or, in, or, or not say anything was probably intense. But now, of course, but of course, years later, she spoke about it, you know, and it's a terrible moment, you know. But what I, you know, apparently in her autobiography, she said it was great. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. That it was an amazing acting moment to be in. That's, I, I, I don't, I wish I had the All quote right. right in front of me, but because I looked up, what is the story behind this? Yeah. Is that I stand corrected? Well, that, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, we've already proven, as you did with the Clemenza story, that what we hear people say, the narrative they say about a thing right. isn't necessarily the thing. Right. But, Regardless, he wallops her. It is really scary. She goes down. You won't take my children. I will. You won't take my children. They're my children. They're my children too. Yeah. Here's what I wrote down in this at, at this point in my notes. Might be the greatest scene in all the movies. Wow. Yeah. And here here's what my reaction was. I was weeping watching this. Wow. It hit me so hard. And what and the thought that I had is if you look at the movies that make me cry, the vast majority of movies that make me cry are because something beautiful happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, dad want to have a catch, 
to my brother, George, the richest man in town, right. you know, Rocky at the end of Rocky. It's always, it's not horrible. And, or sometimes it's a really sad thing will make me cry, but that's not what this is. This is a painful, horrible, awful, terrible thing. Yeah. And it just worked me. Mm. It really did. By the way, this whole idea of the abortion is Talia Shire's idea. Oh, really? She said she came to Francis and said that Kay should abort Michael's son. F Francis took it to Mario uh, Puzo. He hated it. Wow. Um, but they kept it in, and, and of course, for good reason. It works incredibly well. John, I don't know how many parts Godfather Part <laughs> 2 is going to be, but I think this is a good point to end I agree. Act three of The Godfather Part Two. As always, we've been loving so many great comments and so many great questions have been coming in. So keep them going. Take a visit to our Facebook page. Do a search for The Cinephiles. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Please leave your reviews on iTunes. They're super, super important to the show. You can support the show on patreon.com slash The Cinephiles. Even if everyone just did pledged $1 a month, $12 a year, it would make a huge difference in us creating this show. Yeah. So patreon.com slash the cinephiles. If you want to buy or stream The Godfather Part Two, along with every other movie we've ever done, cinephiles.net. Uh, that's cine-files.net. I should say that. Uh, if you want to reach the show, you can do so at cine underscore files on Twitter, the cinephiles podcast on Instagram. I'm on Twitter at SR Morris, Instagram SR Morris one. John, I am thinking about changing my Twitter handle. Oh, okay. So True. I'm trying to figure out something that, you know, it's fun because when uh, I signed up to Twitter really, really early. Yeah. And it was before everyone had all these clever names, like at the Roca says. And so like, I, uh, uh, I'm thinking about changing it. All right. Um, uh, and I just said where they can reach you, but I'm sure you have other things to say as well. You've learned you have the power to change. So much respect to you. All right. I have the power to change. <laughs> Your Twitter handle. Uh, yeah, you can follow me at the Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And please uh, roll on up onto my YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. We're about to cross 16,000 subscri followers, subscribers, I guess. And we're generating so much incredible content, especially if you're a WandaVision fan. The Geek Buddy has been breaking down those uh, episodes with Emma Five. So come aboard and see all the stuff we got going on. Steve's been on a few times reviewing stuff and talking politics with us on Impolite Truth. So please. Please come aboard. The, the Geek Buddies, WandaVisions, uh, they're amazing. I mean, I, I've always I've always been a big fan of the Geek Buddies anyway. Hmm. But like literally, I'm I force Karen to watch the new WandaVision because I'm like, I have to listen to Geek Buddies tomorrow morning. <laughs> we have to. So tonight it is Friday. Yes. I, I haven't watched it yet. So okay. I they've been great. You guys have just been absolutely killing it. Thank you, man. Um, and uh, I think that's it for this week. We will be back into the world of Michael Corleone and the Godfather part two next time on The Cinephiles. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.